Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. This episode features the actress and author Carol Drinkwater. It was the first time I got the tech working properly without my laptop fan going crazy, so we were able to see each other over Zoom while we chatted. Watching Carol in her bookline study talking about writing was a joy. You may know her as the original Helen in the iconic 1970s production of All Creatures Great and Small, or maybe you're familiar with her Olive Farm series of memoirs and travel books, which became international bestsellers. How many of us dream of meeting a glamorous Frenchman, finding a tumble-down house by the sea and restoring it together, whiling away our afternoons in the sparkling pool between writing sessions and heavy manual labour on crumbling walls? Well, anyway, I do. The first book makes it clear that money was very tight, and while I was reading it, I was really keen to know how Carol felt when she took the risk of writing it. After all, she couldn't be sure it would earn the money she so desperately needed. And I was fascinated to hear her answer, and I hope you will be too. It was an act of love, which happens to be the title of her new novel. I had thought that perhaps Carol's acting life and writing life would be two separate things, but she's enlightening about the ways in which she brings her training as an actress into the way she writes. Recently, she's written historical novels based around the south of France. An Act of Love is set in World War II, and it's a story of Sarah, a Jewish refugee from Poland. And again, I was fascinated to hear Carol talk about its resonance with the contemporary world. We recorded this episode in May 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Carol, and welcome to Prepublished. Thank you very much. It's an honour and a discovery to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you on. And and now that we've been doing the, the lockdown episodes, I usually ask people where they're talking to me from and they could just sort of describe where they're sitting. And and I have a feeling listeners are going to be quite jealous when you describe where you're talking to me from. Well, I'm not in the south of France at my olive farm, so maybe they will be a little bit less jealous. I'm speaking to you from what I describe as my our, our mad old chateau, which is a combination. It's east of Paris. It's about 10 to 15 minutes from the border of the Champagne area. So it's kind of equidistant between Paris and Reims, Reims. Um, it's a combination of two and a half um, old stone houses. The house I'm in now is a 13th century commandery. It's freezing cold in here. Um, big, thick walls. The other house was the priest's house, which was alongside this, uh, which is mainly where, where we live. But... Um, there are workmen in there, so I thought they'd be banging in the background, so we're not in there today. So it's east of Paris. It's very flat, very agricultural, um, quite windy, um, and very close to Champagne, so we can whiz over and get some some bubbly. Yeah, no, I think they'll be pretty jealous. <laughs> well, I lovely. painted it quite well, didn't I? <laughs> I did a good sell. <laughs> and uh, um, we, we can talk about your other house later on. Um, I think... Um, a sense of place is something that's going to come through a lot from our conversation today, one way or another. Um, when when I typed your name into Google earlier on, it came up as Carol Drinkwater, Irish actress, which I guess is fair enough. But of course, I now think of you as a writer. How, how do you think of yourself um, these days? Are, are you both? Are you more one than the other? I'm an actress who writes. That's how I see myself. Right. I, I yes. always was an actress and I don't I don't, um, I haven't stopped being an actress. The fact that I'm less active doing that because I'm doing other things, um, mainly writing, doesn't mean that I'm not an actress. So uh, that's what I trained as. That's what I did my three years and got all the kind of degree stuff in. So, yes. you know, so I do think of myself as an actress, an actress who writes. 
Well, we're going to talk about the writing mostly, but um, just briefly uh, to um, to remind people, you you have acted with Max von Sydow and Hugh Grant and Alan Rickman, and oh, fantastic career you've had. Um, so it's so interesting that you know your your sideline is best selling author. <laughs> I think that's amazing. <laughs> Well, I think, yes. I mean, that's what brings in, um, you know, the, the, the lunch money, as it were, rather than the acting these days. Though I do have something up my sleeve, which I'm not quite allowed to talk about yet. But um, so I, I probably will be going back in front of the camera very soon. Oh, that's very exciting. But you are so unusual in that writing is your lucrative sideline to pay for the day job. Because for all of the rest of us, you know, it's usually the other way around. Well, um, well, yes, I've had a couple of lucky breaks with certain books, yes. but um, And also, you know, I do still get some royalties from the acting and that sort of thing. So all joined up together, it buys the lunch, yes. Fantastic. And are you working on a novel at the moment? I'm just beginning a new one, yes, I am. Yes. Well, I mean, these last few weeks, of course, I've been promoting an act of love, and that's, you know, you, you know what it's like promotion. It takes up, it's kind of, it's as full-time as any other job. So um, yes. I tend to wait until all that stuff and the baby's out there, as it were, and then I really get into the next book, which I've been kind of loosely working on for a couple of months, and now I will really go at it. So how often do you like to, to publish now that you're doing sort of the, the historical novels and that, that sort of thing? Is it every year, every other year? No, uh, this business of a book a year, which was what I was uh, um, contracted to do when I first joined Michael Joseph. And this is my last book on the, my, An Act of Love is the last book on my Michael Joseph contract. A, a book a year is too much for me. I'm, I'm not 25. I have other interests in my life and passions like the olive farm. Um, I do occasionally do a bit of research, um, recording work for my husband's documentary films. And I sometimes travel with him to his documentary festivals. So I have a very uh, rich and busy life. And a book, uh, a book, it takes me about 18 months to write a book, including some of the research and that sort of thing. So a book every couple of years is perfectly comfortable for me. I feel fine with that. Yeah, it sounds very realistic. Um, yes, this, the, the way that publishers do a, a book a year, ask us to do that, is is a lot. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I'm very glad I'm doing serious fiction at the moment, because a huge amount of time for me is usually setting up the world and finding the voice yeah. and all of that kind of yeah. thing. And of course, yeah. with serious fiction, I've got it. So that's six months of work already done, and then I can I can kind of power on. But without that, I would find it. I did find it very very difficult to keep going to that kind of schedule. When you say serious fiction, uh, what, what do you? Oh, serious. Series rather than oh, series. Oh, series. No. Sorry, series fiction. Yes. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So you've got the same characters and people coming back and all yeah. that sort of thing. Oh, well, that's great. Exactly. I love all that. Like with the Olive Farm or like with them um, when I did my story, the series, though they were different different characters with each book. I mean, you had the, the kind of style of the book. So, you know, the diary form. So that was always useful to have that in advance. When you're beginning from scratch, then it's. Um, then it's a lot more work, as you well know. I mean, it involves involves discovering everything, which is a great process, but it's time consuming. That's part of yeah. what it is. And you either give the it time is. to it or you don't. And I think the book a year thing means that people are, I know writers that say to me, I would rather write less frequently and actually indulge myself more in the process of writing. And I think that, I think that's a very real concern for people that are on contracts of a book a year. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I really want to talk to you about the, the different processes that you've had with the different types of books that you've done. But at the moment, it's historical fiction, really, isn't it? Well, yes, the, An Act of Love is historical fiction, inspired by a true story in the south of France. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm now going to write historical fiction all the time. The book yeah. that I'm actually um, embarking on or, or creeping into at the moment is... Um, well, as it's as it's at the moment, I mean, for me, everything can change at any time. So I hate to have to tell anybody in advance what it is. Is actually yeah, yeah. A, a modern story, but it does have a historical basis to it. So I do get the pleasure of researching um, certain details in the south of France of that particular period, that particular kind of um, person, uh, and also the modern stuff, because I like to have something that... Um, hits us in a, in a modern sense. I mean, for example, An Act of Love, though it is a historical novel set in, basically set in 1943 during the Second World War in the free zone in the south of France, it is a refugee story. I mean, it's the story mm -hmm. of a girl. Um, in this case, it happens to be a Jewish girl. Uh, it could as easily have been a Syrian girl or, you know, the point yes. is that it is what happens when your life is disrupted and you're taken from your natural um, habitat and forced to find a way to survive. I mean, that's the bottom line of what the story is about. Um, and I set it in, in the Second World War because there's a wonderful story that I discovered or was inspired by down in the south of France. But I also spent time on uh, a Greek island watching um, a Syrian family trying to get from, or they arrived from Turkey onto this island and they were trying to get to Germany. So I spent some time with, not with them, but um, alongside them, let's say. Um, yes. seeing what they had to go through to adapt to what was their now present circumstances. And it made my story, my 1943 Sarah story, because it's a 17-year-old girl, Sarah, um, who's the protagonist in An Act of Love. It became very real for me watching these, these young Syrians and the younger sister of the mother who was the kind of matriarchal figure of this family. Um, and she, this young sister, would walk around the village in in her in her clothes, you know, her Muslim clothes, and she was an outsider. And I watched her. I think she was probably seventeen or eighteen, rather like my lead character. And I spent right. so much time asking myself, what is this like for this young lady? You know, for the rest of us at that age, you know, maybe we were going to dances, we were having our first kiss. I think for younger generations, we were having lots more than first kisses. But you know what I mean? We were stepping out into, yeah. into, the, into the wonderful stage that is womanhood, or hopefully is a wonderful stage. Um, and, you know, for these refugee girls, it's a completely different experience. So that's the modern side of it, if you see what I mean. So, yeah, so it does have this contemporary resonance, even if it is set... 60 years ago or 70 years ago or whatever it may be and again with that one so so set in the the south of france and most of your fiction is is set in france well i say fiction fiction and memoir is really set in france isn't it one way or another well because this is where i live now it's where i mean i yeah. keep saying that i'm going to write a, an irish story and go back to my family and everything but every time i mention it to my agent he said oh well, give us one more French book first. <laughs> so, you know, I say, <clears throat> I told him I wanted to do something in uh, set in Palestine in 44. So just before um, 
Israel existed in you know in the in the new sense of the word Israel. Oh no, he said I don't want that. No, no, no. Give us something set in France. So uh, interesting. Yeah. Oh, I, I think there are stories to be told about that. I would certainly be up for reading that. Yes. Well, I think it's a wonderful and and quite untouched um, area of of uh, modern history. I think you know where lots was going on. Yes, given what it's led to now, well, exactly. uh, we should all know a lot more than we do. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm interested with 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 the process. Uh, given that you have this this busy life, you um, you do many other things. So, are you one of these people that sort of sits down to work at six o'clock every morning and has, is done by eleven and then gets on with your day every day, or do you just sort of fit it in around all the other things you're doing? How, oh, I mean, no, you've got I... quite a work rate. How do you get it in? I when I'm actually writing the book, um, then I will start usually around kind of eight-ish, go through till about two, stop for um, two or three hours, swim, if my husband's there, have a late lunch with him or potter around in the garden, get myself out, physically out. And then I will Mm. go back to the book around five and maybe potter with it till about 6.30 or 7. So I go back over what I've written, correct it, though I will already have done some corrections in the morning, and then leave myself with it so that it it sits with me and sleeps with me so that when I get up the next day, it's already very present in my mind and my head. And I do a lot of, I do find quite a lot of work gets done while I'm sleeping. It's an extraordinary thing, but you know, some writers do say that, that they wake up and problems are solved, etc. If I'm really into the book and getting close to the end or close to a deadline, then I will start much earlier. I'll start around six and go uh, go through. I mean, I can work 16 hours a day, but I don't like to work that much because I actually think it flogs me, if you know what I mean. I think, yes, it's, yeah. I, I think it's important not to, if you can avoid it, or for me anyway, not to, to push myself to the point where I exhaust myself because it's, it's, not, it's not fruitful the next day, I find, or the next few days. So I try to be reasonable about it. Sounds quite similar to my process, apart from the kind of lovely swim in the middle of the day. You don't, I could go to Tooting Lido, actually, and do that, but I don't. Um, but yeah, I do try and get some green in. Ones with Common, it's not quite the same. No, but it's pretty nice, um, Ones with Common. It's it is, it is very nice, and, yeah. 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 I'm very lucky. I have the lake. I can go and look at the odd swan and yes, yes re- yeah. relax that secrets, way. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the way that I came to your writing was the Olive Farm series, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who has done that. Um, and I, again, I'm sure I'm not the only person who just felt, oh, wow, this book was written for me personally, because I adore the South of France. I studied French, uh, along with Italian at university. I've, I've spent many times walking sort of along the, the, the coast there, the Côte d'Azur, thinking, where, where would I live if, if it was me? And I decided Cassis is my, my Oh, I love Cassis. House, um, my book, The House on the Edge of the Cliff, is set there. Well, the I realise that, and yeah. I haven't read that one yet, oh, so well, that's the next You'll one on my list. <laughs> full of the Calang. I will, I really, really will. <laughs> yeah, full of the Calang. I love that area. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah, and the weather is glorious, and yeah, it's fascinating. And I, and I again, but I love to imagine what it would have been like in the 20s and 30s when exactly. it wasn't quite so full exactly. of traffic jams yeah, yeah. and yeah, marché yeah. and all that kind of thing. Um and you know, and along comes this book where where there you are uh, with the man that you're going to marry, and and you're looking around and you find this kind of tumble down place with the tumble down garden, ruin, um, I think and you do worse. this magical thing. Sorry, ruin. Ruin. I think <laughs> 
Um, and what I love about the olive farm is it's, it is a story of really hard work. I mean, you know, you start off with the swimming pool and how far away it was from being an actual usable swimming pool. And even finding the, the way to fill it with water was extremely arduous. Oh, that was a big um, challenge to find the water. We had no water and no electricity when we first went there and no money. When I say no money, I mean no money. You know, if we spent 25 francs on a a really shabby old barbecue that that was truly lashing out um so so yes it was hard work and a big challenge and a huge act of love Funny I love that I love that too because um yeah if it had just been you know we had all these millions and we bought a house and we did it up I, I wouldn't have read that book and I don't think many other people would have either. But the fact that you you had to do jobs, you had to have royalties from other books that you'd written. Every every sou that you, you and Michelle could get together had to go into this and you were worried about it and it nearly didn't work. And you had all these trips to Belgium that were absolutely sort of terrifying. Would, 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 would you come out of it OK? Um, there's a huge amount of jeopardy in it for for a book about rebuilding a house was was that was that something you were aware of while you were writing it i was very aware of i mean my mother and father the, though i was in my um early 30s my mother and my father just put their hands in their heads and said and this is another mistake carol this will not this will not play well well they were wrong of course i mean it has played very well but we did nearly lose it um we guaranteed it against um a series of films that uh, didn't make the money back and so you know there has been uh, uh, and we separated for a time so that wasn't easy i stayed there um so it, it, there have been immense challenges and um moments when i really really did ne nearly give up but um i'm so glad i didn't and i because i think that you know we've reached an age now the house is paid for uh, so anything we spend money on when it comes in can be for uh, not a frippery, but, you know, for something we might not have. I mean, now, of course, it's all come round again and the walls are, are damp again and we need to do all those kind of things. But that happens with houses. But I'm more zen about that kind of stuff now. I'd rather build, which is what we're doing now, a new pergola and let the dam damp come into the walls you know before I used to go damp oh horror horror you know like in a pantomime but now I kind of think okay there's damp in the walls you know the house has been there longer than I have so it's gonna stay it'll still be there when I'm gone same with this place right you know 13th century this well, place yes it survived well enough it's interesting you describe a couple of moments where you're you're sitting outside the family are around you and you're all having a you know a lovely Provencal meal with the sun shining on you and it's just is my idea of absolute heaven uh, but I'm thinking you really earned it by taking a massive risk to sit down and write about it and I, I was as a writer I was really wondering about you in those moments where you didn't know that the book was going to take off you couldn't be sure that it would become the bestseller and the series that that it did how were you feeling then investing the time in, in writing when you could have been doing something else to, you know, to buy another barbecue? Um, what was going through your mind as you were as you were writing the memoir? Did it, you did you have some underlying sense it would work? No, I had a, a, an underlying sense of desperation. Michelle and I had split up. That's the period when we split up. Uh, for various reasons we split up. There was a car accident and there were various other circumstances that led to that. And it was a split that actually took close to five years on and off um, for us to get back together again. So it was a great act of faith for me to stay there and stay with it. But the best way that I felt that I could 
handle it and the loneliness and the worry and the absolutely well penury it was penury for me at that mm. stage because I couldn't go off and, and, and do any acting even if I was offered it because I had to look after the place but was would we get back together it was my way of keeping faith with my love story and with the story of the house of the whole it was it's a love I story see. on many levels it's a love story between myself and Michelle it's a love story is, between yes. myself and appassionate of the house it's also a love story for the olive trees and the culture and history of the olive tree which is the the Olive Tree is very much um, a, a, a personage in my in my in my world. You know, I mean, the Olive Tree has yes. offered a great deal. Uh, its history has offered me a great deal. I spent 17 months traveling around the the Med for the two travel books, the Olive Root mm. and the Olive Tree, which then inspired a five-part documentary film series for Arte. Um, so. Uh, you know, the tree, the culture, the Mediterranean, the, it's all part of the same love story. And I had no idea, of course, when we bought it, I was just looking for a place to chill out. I had no <laughs> idea that this story would draw me in the way that it has and that it would actually enrich me with so many other aspects of life, of different civilizations, of history, it's all become, it's, and it gets bigger all the time. You know, people send me material or I'm on the new thing I'm working on now. I've been looking at Marseille all over again um, from the, you know, from when the, the Phocicians came there to bring olives 700 years before Christ. You know, all of that comes back again. And it's, well, it's just been a wonderful experience. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have who would have thought that a bit of bricks and mortar or a ruin would give me all this? But yeah, it's, it, and mean, it's amazing. It, it's been a reward for. I did take a monumental risk. I was going in with a man I hardly knew. I mean, we, you know, we'd been together about uh, six months, I think, when we first found the house. But living in Paris and London, so you know, visiting each other for wonderful weekends and and dinner alongside the Champs-Élysées is not at all the same thing as nitty-gritty living together. So I was taking a big risk and we didn't have any money. We really didn't. I mean, we bought it really. I don't know how we put it together now when I look back on it, but we did. When I was reading it, I, I was interested in the house. I was interested in the Frenchness. And then and then your love story with Michelle came through very strongly, which which again felt like a very brave and personal thing to talk about. Um, and then, and then the trees. And I am, I must say, I have tried to buy your olive oil because I want to buy into this, but I can't <laughs> find it anywhere. It's not commercialised. No, we don't really. And now that we're organic, we produce much less. And also because we're both so busy. So, and during lockdown, of course, there's been no one to help us um, harvest the trees. So, all in all, we've been producing quite a lot less recently. Um, it's only available if someone approaches me personally and then I can ship a bottle to them you know but it, but it actually works out jolly expensive because everything is is picked by hand is it's uh, trié it's um you know it's it's separated by hand and then I take it to the mill so it's quite a a time consuming and a labor of love as it were but um I don't know. I mean, people say, do I want to turn it into a business? I think not. You know, I mean, I love doing it. I'm not a businesswoman. I mean, I've learned to put figures together and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not a businesswoman. And that's not what I'm, I don't do it for that. I do it for the tradition of it, for the fact that I'm living and keeping faith with something that is at least 7,000 years old. So um, it, those are my reasons for doing it. So if you yes. want a bottle, you're just going to have to send me a message and say, 
you know, and, and then it's about 40 euros a bottle, which I thought was terribly expensive, but I started seeing, you know, boutique places and stuff like that are charging a lot more than that, but, and they're not necessarily organic, so, you know. Well, I could guess in lockdown, perhaps lots of people have become much more um, connoisseurs of things like yes, olive oil than yes, they, they were yeah. before, more time to experiment. Um, so you, before you, you sat down to write that book, and, and again, I, I am just, just so fascinated by that leap of faith you took. And I, because this is a, a series, a podcast series, really, for, for people who are trying to get published, although I know a lot of published authors listen to it, I feel I half want to say, you know, look at Carol, this leap of faith can really work. Um, and then I half want to say, but it, it so often doesn't. I mean, you know, it, it's it's a genuine risk that one takes, isn't it? Investing all that time and, and that emotion and, and that love. And you, you don't quite know if it's going to pay off or not. But but it wasn't your first book by any means, was it? You'd, you'd written no, before no, no, that. No, no, no. I'd written, the first thing I wrote was The Haunted School, which was a children's um, uh, you know, ghost story set in, in Australia, which Michelle produced and I played the main role in and Disney bought it for America and it won the Chicago Film Festival Award for children's films. So it got up and sold about in England or maybe not just in England, I can't remember now, about 170,000 copies, which back then, oh, which was, yeah, back then for, that must have been uh, towards the end of the 80s, 1980s, uh, was a huge, this is pre-Harry Potter, and people were very well, exactly. snooty yeah. about children's books and children's <laughs> telly. It was yeah. considered second rate, which I never felt yeah. it was, because I think it's very exciting and very interesting, uh, you know, material to be creating for such a, such a, a very, very um, observant audience and readership. Uh, so it did very well indeed, and that's when Penguin put me under contract for my adult books. Um, and I wrote two or three and then went on to the memoirs. Or maybe I did some of them at Scholastic, my storybooks first, which were also, that was for the um, young adult market. History books told through diaries through the eyes of one young woman. Um, so I did some of those, I think, then. And then I went on to the Olive Farm books and then back to fiction. So you you were doing a huge shift in genre when you started to write the Olive Farm books. You were writing for adults and you were writing nonfiction. Um, was it? Did it feel like a big leap, or or were you using the the tools of the trade that you'd learnt already just to sort of sit down and fill a page with writing? I think this is probably more than anywhere where I went back to being an actress, as it were, because oh. you know, as an actress, what you do is you open your soul you know it you are your own utensil there's nothing except your yes. own emotional range your body language um, your interaction with other people I mean you put on the the cloak of a character but finally where you get your in your um your resources from is from yourself uh, now I know we all do this as writers as well but it's very particular as an actress. I mean, if you want to cry, you have to take that from inside yourself. You have to go back to emotional memories or maybe just the, the filming experience gives you the opportunity to cry. But, you know, that's where it comes from, your inner self. And I think with the Olive Farm books, because I was going through the, the, the crisis of the fact that Michelle and I had split up and I was in this rundown house with no money on my own and Michelle was back in Paris and I was kind of 900 k's away from him not knowing if we'd get back together again that, that I started to write the story and I really pulled it out of myself it, and it wasn't difficult to pull out of myself I, I felt a, 
a real big need to do it. And then when the first one was published, and my um, uh, Weidenfeld and Nicholson, I think it, I was with Little Brown at that stage, they said, um, you know, here's two more books on the contract. You must have Olive in the, in the title. Um, uh, and then they, you know, they built with it. I think in the end, it was six books in the end, plus an illustrated book, including the two travel books. So um, I didn't know how it would end. I didn't know if Michelle and I would get back together again. I didn't realize when I was writing the second book, The Olive Season, which talks about my losing a, a little girl, uh, losing a, a baby, a miscarriage, which was a little girl, um, and then discovering that, in fact, I wouldn't be able to carry a child full term. I lost about six or seven miscarriages. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I mean, I, look, my life has rewarded me in very many other ways, so I, I'm not bemoaning my fate. Um, but when I came to promote that book, to go out because in the days before lockdown when you could actually stand up in front of a theatre of people and talk about it, then I realised how close, A, I was to myself, to sharing myself, and how close I was to the actress in me who would get up and, and um, you know, state this is the situation, reading from the book, that sort of thing in front of audiences. And I got a phenomenal amount of mail from people that both men and women who had been, you know, potential fathers or, or mothers and lost babies. So, and the olive tree became, as it were, the the my future um, nurturing tool. So I was able to transfer my loss of, of that little girl and then any other child I might have had into the idea of creating something that is very much for the future because you don't plant an olive tree for today, you plant it for 100 years time or 50 years time, I mean, for the generations way beyond you, which in a way when you yes. have children is what you do because the child then goes on to have their own children and you're keeping the future generations alive and fed and kicking as it were. So it has its own sort of... Yeah, I was going to say that that's very much the themes that I'm I'm writing at the moment. So oh, is <laughs> it's it? interesting to, to hear those. What about loss of children? Uh, no, but about about future generations, about about um, living legacy. a life which which is thinking thinking very much about legacy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it might end up being a good title for the book, actually. It's a very very vital issue, um, and I think it's one of the most pressing things that we should be thinking about and and writing about. Indeed, I, uh, am I allowed yeah. to ask you in what particular way you're approaching it, or is it a secret at the moment? Well, um, because I'm writing a series about the Queen, um, I've got a book set at Windsor Castle, which has come out, and a book set at Buckingham Palace, and I'm now doing a book set at Sandringham. And Sandringham is an estate owned privately by the royal family. So it's where they can be farmers and where they, you know, they can personally interact with the land. They don't need, you know, the permission of, of the crown to sort of do things. Um, and so, you know, for, for them and for their, their land-owning neighbours, it is a lot about, you know, what, what you do for future generations and, and you know, how you do it sustainably and all that kind of thing. And well, I'm, Of course, yeah, that's I'm Charles's really thing. I mean, I, I've yeah. talked at um, Charles, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he, he did for a couple of years or two or three years have a, um, a kind of organic, uh, ce a celebration of everything organic at uh, Clarence House in London. And I was one of the speakers at... Um, uh, one of the, these festivals and um, you know I, I was able to go into the gardens and see what he was doing and the compost that he was creating the head gardener took me on a tour and this is our compost <laughs> oh it's royal compost <laughs> and telling me that Charles kept saying to um, his mum you know you must you must feed the horses organically so that I can get 
<laughs> their manure to put on, then I don't have to bring it up from, you know. So it was, uh, yeah, I think Charles is very into that. I mean, he's big on, on, on the legacy of what we, what we do with chemicals and not, or not put chemicals on the land. It's something that he's very, I'm sure he'd love to talk to you about it. Oh, I'd love to talk to him if you'd let me. But I was also interested to hear that, that Prince Philip was, was very much into all of that as well. And they're rewilding the, the lake in the middle of the, um, the garden at Buckingham Palace, which I think oh, is, really? a, is a I wonderful didn't know that. That thing is to be doing. Now, I've only recently yeah. heard that. Yeah. Um, so, yes, he, he, he didn't talk about it as much as Charles does, but obviously something that they, they both felt very strongly about. So, yes, legacy being something that... Um, that I'm thinking about at the moment. Um, but back back to the writing, um, do you have any any writers who you're const- you refer back to mentally when you're when you are writing in, in either as you know you, you like their fiction or they've written about writing in ways that you find useful? Well, I think Stephen King's book on on writing is exceptional. Um, I'm not necessarily always a Stephen King reader, though I do think he's written one or two really exceptional books. Um, and, and, and some of the, his observations of modern America are quite <laughs> terrifying <laughs> and very accurate. Uh, but his, write on, his book on writing is very good. I mean, Margaret Atwood has written on writing. I mean, many, many of the, you know, the people that one admires and looks up to. Uh, I, I, I look to... Mainly, though, rather than people that about on writing, that's if I'm doing a course somewhere, you know, that I'm talking to people about writing and students, then I will refer back to other people. But um, I think more than anything, if I'm stuck or if I'm in need of some kind of visual, st- um, uh, men- you know, fictional mental stimulus, then I might go just to someone whose work I admire and just read a few pages, not not to take their material, but just to imbue myself with something that is finely honed, that is um, crafted, the, the words are well chosen, the sentences have a, have a kind of lyricism about them just to just to remind myself put myself back into you know because sometimes the days are fractious or one's dealing with contracts or god knows what you know and all that stuff is a pain frankly isn't it it's stuff we have to do to get to the other place in my opinion anyway uh so it's just very nice sometimes or to sit and read a, a poem or something and that helps me reminds my puts my spiritual self back in touch with words and and that's an enormous help for me you know I might just sit at my if I really can't do anything I'll just take something off the shelf and just sit and and read for a bit and it it might not be a bit of Lawrence Durrell or you know whatever it might be Uh, and that just sometimes just allows me then to connect with the, my inner self, my deeper self, my more spiritual self. Does that make sense to, to what Completely. Saying? Yes, oh, yeah. I can absolutely picture that. I, I do a similar thing, although I, I'm not going for my spiritual self, although I'm going for my comedy self, so it's a slightly oh, okay. different journey, but <laughs> but I get that. No, I, I, I am very much a picker up of, of other things that I love and uh, and having them in piles around me when I'm writing. Yes, yes. So I can keep magpie. It's a kind of magpie thing, yes. isn't it? It's not that, yes. it's not that we're taking anything from... I'm not taking sentences from someone else's work I'm just allowing myself to be washed through with other people's um, finished opus piece of work you know whatever it happens to be or 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 just a, a glimpse into that you know I find that very rewarding 
It's a really good tip for people, I think. And um, we're nearly at the end now, but I, I always ask people um, whether you have any specific tips that, for aspiring writers that you'd like to pass along. Well, I think, you know, it's a very obvious thing to say, but nobody's going to write the book if you don't sit down at that desk. I mean, I know it's obvious, but it's a fact. Nobody else is going to write that book. Or someone else will write the book and you've lost the opportunity to, to tell that story. You know, it is a thing that if you want to do it, all this, when people say to me, I've got a book in me, I want to hit them. <laughs> you know, A, because it's so... But just because if you've got something to say, then you need to sit down and get on with it. That's really the most important thing. The other thing I would say is read, read, read. When I'm, when I'm a, a, um, a judge or on, on um, you know, juries for festivals, and you get to read, and you have to read a whole heap of books really fast, uh, it's only afterwards I really get the merit of what that has given me. You know, I'm the one that wins, really. Someone gets a prize and everything, but I've got all this material yeah. that I've drawn into <laughs> myself really fast, and afterwards I can begin to process it all. So reading is so important, so important. I, I mean, you do. I do meet people who say, I've never read a book, but I write. <laughs> I just don't get that. Yes. I just don't get that. No, I don't don't get that either, I have to say. I, I do get it when people didn't read as children and came to it later. But, yeah, if you're not reading well, yes, now and you're writing, then you are, you're going to be a bit stuck. I mean, I yes, think, I think the childhood thing, I mean, we didn't have lots of books in my parents' house. Um, I came to them and I, I discovered there was a room in the house that I was always sent to when I was punished and it was kind of a joy there was a little platform there and I used to make that my stage my father bought me a great big jigsaw puzzle of Shakespeare with Shakespeare's head in the middle and triangles of all the of all the plays and then he bought me a complete works of Shakespeare and I was about eight so I used to write down all these words I didn't coxcomb what on earth does that mean you know <laughs> saith all those kind of things that were really strange to this young girl living in in uh, you know an ordinary house in an ordinary town um that was the beginning of you know all that going into other people's work and such a gift but we didn't have lots of books i didn't read a lot it came through performance and my beginning to write my own plays really for me to perform or to do at school or whatever it happened to be uh, that was the beginning for me and then came reading you know i was kind of mocked at school a bit for the level of the material when it went around the class and I said I was reading the William books and I was told to leave the classroom. <laughs> the English teacher said, get oh. out, you're mocking us. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm reading the William books. They're wonderful. <laughs> was asking, because what, they were considered beneath you. Is, is, considered beneath, of, yes, yes. That they weren't up to oh. the, you know, all that It's one of my absolute I, I think it is a sign of a great reader is they read up and they read down and they read they read what gives them pleasure. And um, yes, just I, I would have been read absolutely full, rewarding you for yes, that. Yes, read full stop. You know, there's no better, worse. You know, Joan Harris always says, you know, if you're reading comics, it doesn't matter what you're reading, read, you know, and encourage people to read. If they start with the Kellogg's Corn Packet, read and, you know, encourage that growth of the learning of words and the discovery of words and the expression of. I think that's really so important. And it's such a joy. That's wonderful. And and we've we've managed to sort of um bring in this intertwining of of you as an actress and you as a writer again, which which I'm really fascinated by. Um it's been a lovely, lovely conversation. Thank you yes, so much. Thank you. Carol. I really enjoyed that. Wonderful. Thank you.
I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.